All right, you all, I know. That's all the sermon you need, right? You got it. We're good? We get out of here on time? I have no idea where to stand, and here's the thing. I'm going to move all over the place anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, when Taryn asked me this week if I had a children's uh, moment ready, I thought about our text, and I thought about a children's moment, and I was like, Really? And I don't, I don't know if I can express to you the depths of my worry and despair if I don't just read you this parable that Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 16. So let's just read it together and so you can feel my fear when I got asked the question, you have a children's moment, don't you? It goes something like this. In Luke chapter 16, we hear, now Jesus turned to his disciples and he told them there, there was a rich man a man whose manager was accused of wasting his money and possessions. So he called his manager in and he asked him, what, what is this I hear about you? Come on, give me an account of what you've been doing because you cannot be my manager any longer. Now, the manager thought to himself, what in the world will I do now? My master is taking away my job? <laughs> I'm not strong enough to go out and work manual labor, and I'm way too embarrassed to beg. I, wait, I know. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. And so the manager called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first one, so how, how much do you owe my master again? And he replied, 900 gallons of olive oil. I know y'all bought olive oil, right? It's not exactly cheap these days, is it? It was not back then either. And so the manager told him, hold on, come on, come on, take your bill, sit down quickly now, write out 450 gallons. And then he asked the second debtor, and how much do you owe, friend? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Come, take your bill, make it 800 bushels. Now, the master commended and praised this dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. You see, the children of this world are more shrewd and crafty in their dealing with each other than are the children of light. And I tell you, you should use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you too will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You see, whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little, they're also dishonest in a lot. Okay, 10 verses, I know. Those of you who haven't, like, started thinking about what you're going to eat this afternoon or what Taryn's going to look like silly stringed up, uh, like, help me out here. Did you, did you hear that? Like, like paying attention, what, what a weird, strange story that Jesus tells here. What, what in the world is going on? And, I mean, don't get me wrong— I've, I've been around the Bible enough to know that there's a lot of difficult and strange stories, okay? I get that. You know, some of them are hard and difficult because of what they ask us to do and who they call us to be. 
Um, you know, I think of Jesus saying things like, yeah, you really, you really should turn your other cheek when someone hits you. You know, you really should love your enemy. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Or, one of my favorites, Jesus says, look, to follow me, all you need to do is sell all that you have and give away your possessions to those who need it. That's a difficult text in its own way, right? Those are the kinds of texts that, that are difficult because of who they call us to be. They're the kind of texts that we wrestle with every day as we try to be faithful. Or, or maybe we ignore every day, depending on where you're at right now and you're like, faithfulness journey. Um, I find myself ignoring these texts sometimes, I think. But, but then there are stories in the Bible like the one we just read today. Stories that are difficult and challenging, not just because of what they ask us to do, but, but even to get our heads around them and make sense of them. I mean, you read through a parable like this too quickly, and you get sort of like interpretive whiplash. Like, wait a second, what? What am I being asked to do here? What is Jesus implying with this story? Is, is Jesus telling me that like sneaky, weird, sideline investment practices are actually a-okay? So, as long as I'm using the money for, for the right stuff, right? Is Jesus telling me that I'm supposed to go shake down rich people like Robin Hood and redistribute it to the poor? Is that, is that, the, is that the lesson here? And hold on, who am I in this parable? Am I, am I supposed to be the dishonest manager? Or, or maybe I'm one of the debtors who gets their debt cut. And, and speaking of who I am, who in the world is Jesus? Right? Is, is this parable supposed, am I supposed to picture God as some like hard, rich, wealthy taskmaster who's like sitting back and clapping his hands when I do dishonest things? It's a weird story that Jesus tells and then acts like we're supposed to understand it, right? No big deal. You all get it. Whoever is faithful in a little is faithful in a lot. Lesson, lesson good to go, right? You see, I'm like 93.6 or 7% sure that Taryn somehow tricked me into preaching this Sunday because this is a weird text. I don't know how yet she tricked me. She let me choose, but I'm pretty sure the little Excel preaching, she had something that drew my eye to this Sunday. Because once I went and looked up the passage, I was like, ah, touche. You win this round. The good news here is Luke gives us a few signs to point us in the right direction to make sense of this parable and begin to unpack it and apply it in our own lives and see and think about and reflect on what Jesus is teaching. And the first sign is, is an easy one, but it's one that I often skim over, right? It's who Jesus is talking to. You see, in the parables that came right before this, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, parables that Taryn preached on just a couple of weeks ago, the parable of the lost or prodigal son. Those are all parables that Taryn told us were directed to the Pharisees and scribes, right? The religious leaders of their day. 
Those people who were a little bit frustrated with Jesus for, for spending all of his time and building relationships with, with the poor and the outcasts. Those who had done things that the Pharisees and scribes and plenty of other people really didn't approve of. And Jesus responds to them with these parables that remind them and remind us that God values and pursues each and every one of us with all that God is. And that we, as God's creation, as God's children made in God's image, we're called to the same sort of work and love, chasing after those who are missing, who are left out. Now, the parable today retains some of those connections. It still thinks about how we should care for and give to and work for those who are under the heel of others. But the setting changes, right? 16 verse 1 says, Now Jesus turned to his disciples and said. So the first marker tells us that this is a parable specifically for the followers of God. This is a parable that's specifically about discipleship, living into God's kingdom and working it out in our daily lives. It's a parable that teaches us something about what it means to be someone who follows after Jesus. Now, a second important point for making sense of this very weird story is, is a point about how Jesus' parables work in general. I don't know about you, but when I, ha when I read the parables, I tend to read them as allegories. Yeah, right? Because we all talk about allegories every day. Christians can be the worst sometimes. We use words like allegory what, and, and prodigal. Does anyone in here know what prodigal means? Yeah, I went to school for 11 years to study the Bible, and I don't know off the top of my head what prodigal means. Google does. Google says prodigal means, right, like uh, wasteful, um, spending lavishly. We could have called the story the parable of the wasteful son or the squandering son, but no. We Christians like to say, don't you just love Jesus' story about the prodigal son? We hold on to weird words like that, don't we? And allegory is one of them, right? Allegory is just a word for a story that's symbolic, right? Where every character or major point represents something else in our reality. And that's how I read this parable at first, right? Like I was straight up asking the question, who am I supposed to be and who in the heck is God in this story? Because I don't really like any of the options. Jesus' parables are rarely that straightforward. Jesus' parables are these stories that, rather than trying to like get us to work out what represents what, they try and wake us up. They're stories that purposefully startle us to help us think in new ways about important truths. Truths about what God's kingdom looks like and who we're called to be in it. So the question shouldn't really be, who am I and who is Jesus in this parable? But what is this story trying to teach me about God's kingdom and living 
faithfully within it. Who am I called to be by this story and God's new creation? Now, when it comes to this story, I think verses 8 and 9 help point us in the right direction. What sort of truth is Jesus trying to teach us about living faithfully, about living into God's kingdom? Right, verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. Right? Craftily. For the children of this world, right, you all pay attention. The people of this world, they are so much better, so much more shrewd in dealing with each other than the children of light are. And so I tell you right now, use your means, your worldly wealth, everything you have to gain friends. So that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So here's what I'll ask. Take a step back for a second and ask yourself this. Are you, my friend, shrewd? Crafty? Are you wise in how you invest for God's kingdom? And here's what I mean by that. Compare how much time we tend to spend on things uh, right, rooted right now in our own broken world in reality. You know, the, the things that, that we invest energy and effort into rather than pouring our time and lives into God's kingdom work and love. I'll give you what for me is an easy example. How many of us think regularly about, plan for, invest energy and time in planning for our retirement. Now, some of you might be like, what? We have to, wait, don't I get, is this Social Security I have to plan for a retirement? Right, but some of us, some of us have spent many, many hours speaking with uh, financial advisors or reading blogs online, or, or trying to figure out what in the actual world is the difference between a stock and a bond. I'm still not really sure that I know, but I've spent hours trying to figure it out. And then there are all these other ways we're asked to invest time, and we, and we pour ourselves into thinking about our future, right? We, we spend time thinking about how much we want taken out of our weekly or monthly paychecks how much we should set aside, how much are other people setting aside, what's my neighbor doing for their retirement? There's a whole host of tools and blogs and articles, so many tunnels we can fall down spending time trying to figure out how do I make it once I don't have a job, right? Thinking about our potential, our possible future. Maybe that's not you, maybe that's just revealing a deep, dark part of myself. I don't like leaving the future to others, and it's not a great characteristic for a human, just so you know. But we all do this in different ways, right? I mean, think about the time you invest and we invest in, in choosing our vehicles, our, our cars, our boats, our motorcycles, right? And not just, 
not just all the time you spend researching beforehand and checking out other people's cars, but like the time you spend looking for the best insurance rate after. It's not a quick process, is it? It takes a lot of time. I'm like, man, shouldn't someone make it easier for me to give them my money? Think about the time we invest in our careers and choosing the right home, or these days finding the right home loan that's not at 7.8% interest. We pour ourselves and our time and energy into planning for our immediate future. What Jesus is trying to to say here with this story, what he's trying to wake us up to is that God calls us to be just as shrewd, just as high in investment, just as calculating in how we shape and invest our lives in discipleship, in relationship building, in God's kingdom work. Jesus says, look at how the dishonest manager changed his life got it together, started acting with everything he had to rectify his situation, right? Like, come on, that's who we should be. That's how you should approach living for God here and now. Jesus, with this story, I think he calls us to be wily, right? To, to think and reflect all of the time on on how best to pour ourselves and our resources, right? The resources of this world, that dishonest wealth, into expanding God's light and life and love and presence here on this earth. And on top of that, just in case you already weren't comfortable, like uncomfortable enough, Jesus goes ahead and underlines and affirms that his kingdom, what you're called to invest in, it values those who are on the sidelines, those who are ignored, those who are at the bottom rung of society, those who are on the margins. What's Jesus' kingdom look like according to a story like this, a story about a dishonest wily, shrewd manager. It looks like befriending and investing in those who are under the heel of of someone else. The debts owed by these two debtors and the fact that he says the first and then the second implies that there were a long line of debtors that came after this. Jesus just wanted us to stay awake for the end of the story. These weren't small debts. 900 gallons of olive oil isn't the amount that, like, a small Mediterranean farm produces in a summer. Right? We're talking about, like, 20 to 25 times what a normal family farm in the Mediterranean world would have produced. A thousand bushels of wheat, friends? That's not a small amount. And Jesus' parable here reinforces a truth that we've heard throughout Luke's gospel. The values of God's kingdom are upside down compared to the values of the world that we've created and constructed. And Luke's gospel, realizing God's kingdom, means the first 
are made last, and the last are made first. It means the humble, they're lifted up by God and God's people while the proud are cast down. It means the hungry are filled, those who weep find joy, and the poor are blessed. Jesus' story push and pride at us. Here he calls us to invest our time, our energy, our life, our resources into these upside-down economics of God's kingdom. So the story leaves us with simple questions, right? Are we children of the light, right? Those who Jesus pokes fun at. Are we good stewards, good long-term investors when it comes to discipleship, to our faith? Wesley wrote that this parable in Luke 16 means for us to give unto God not just a tenth, not a third, not half, but everything that is God's. And by putting it all to use on yourself, on your household, on the household of faith, on all humankind, in this way, you may give a good account of your management when you are no longer a manager. So employ whatever God has entrusted you with, employ it in doing good, all possible good, and every possible kind and decree to the household of faith and to all people. That's the point of this story, Wesley says. Ask yourself, how do I invest in God's kingdom, in my faith, in my discipleship? Are we doing all the possible good we can with everything that God has placed and poured into our lives? Because if not, Jesus is telling us, now is the time to take action, to change things where we haven't been as savvy and resourceful for God's living as we could be, just like the crafty manager did. The story purposely leaves us with these sorts of hard questions. Right? It's, it's a story that, that tries to hold up a mirror to our face and asks us, how do you, dear reader, invest yourself in God's kingdom, in discipleship? I mean, we have a, a limited amount of time and resources, right? Karen has told me that there's 168 hours in each week. And the question Jesus asked with this story is, are you a shrewd and determined disciple? Are you building up and making real God's upside-down kingdom right here and right now with those, that time and your resources? What does your investment in faith and discipleship, right in your own growth and in the growth of the people around you, look like? Does it look like just an hour or two out of your 168 on a Sunday morning, maybe? 
Jesus asks us here, what about those 167 other hours of your week? What about your money, your gifts, your abilities, your attention and care? How are you investing your life and self for Jesus and others day in and day out? You know, a wise man once said that those who are faithful with little, right? Those who know that they are just a small seed called to die to self so that they might grow into a beautiful and life-giving tree for others. Those people are faithful and will be trusted with much in the kingdom of our maker and creator. I'll let you figure out whether the wise man was Jesus or Steve. I still don't really know myself. I'm working through it. But my friends, this morning, I think Jesus leaves us with this sort of calling. Go out. Make friends. Grow relationships. Invest in others and connect people to the life and love of Jesus by giving them your time and yourself. Right? These things look really ridiculous and silly and absurd to the world around us. Giving of our time, investing in God's kingdom rather than setting aside another five hours for our retirement funds and whether we should be 80-20 stocks bonds or 90-10. Investing in others first looks silly to the world around us. And yet followers of Jesus are asked again and again by our creator to love sacrificially, to love others in a way the world finds senseless and silly and crazy. And Jesus says that we will be blown away, amazed at the results of a world transformed by that sort of self-giving love and sacrifice. And so it's to that sort of challenge, that divine mission and calling of God's people that we'll look to in the coming weeks with our next sermon series. But for now, I'll invite the band to come back up as we pray together in a time of reflection and self-giving.